The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. I hope you guys are having yourselves a wonderful day. So before we kick everything off, um, for those of you that are in contact with Todd Colip in South Carolina, and you're wondering why he hasn't gotten back to you, he's been transferred from Lieber Correctional Institution over to Bro- back to Broad River, which is the prison he started off at. He uh, is currently in segregation, which is solitary, and so if he's not getting back to you, that is the reason why. He's not avoiding your ass. Nothing like that. Don't get your panties in a bunch. All right, boys and girls, strap in, because this one here is kind of a wild ride. Today we're going to be doing Gerard Schaefer, and he's got a couple of different aliases. He was, he was deemed murder cop. And Killer Cop, The Hangman, The Butcher of Blind Creek, and my favorite of them all, you sitting down for this last one, Jerry Shepard. Yeah, I know. Just wait. Just wait. By the end of this, you're going to understand the Jerry Shepard. So he was born March 26th of 1946 in Nina, Wisconsin. I think it's Nina. N-E-E-N-A-H. And if you're from Wisconsin and... Uh, you know, don't be all offended because you guys have some weird-ass names that I can't pronounce. So his parents were John Schaefer Sr., and he was a traveling salesman. And his mama, her name was Doris Marie Schaefer, and she was just a housewife. But keep in mind, it's the 40s. You know, there's a lot of housewives, more housewives than there are, you know, like today. He was the first of three children, and he was raised in Nashville, Tennessee. And later on, they moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And until his father finally moved him permanently to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And this is back in 1960. So one article that, uh, that I read, descri- he described himself as the illegitimate product of a forced marriage. It could be true because, you know, keep him back in that time there. If you got a girl pregnant, you know, dad would come after you with like a shotgun or some shit and say, you're going to marry my daughter. That type of thing. But who knows? He could be full of shit. To the contrary to that, a family friend of, Sh- of the Schaefer's uh, said his uh, early life was truly idealistic. But Schaefer disagreed, saying his parents never had a good relationship. So keep this in mind, okay? Things can seem very different to a child or anyone living in a situation as opposed to someone who's not living day by day with that family. You know, what people see on the outside isn't necessarily what people see on the inside. So... His parents were always very critical of him. And he said that his father and his mother were always on his back to do better. And he thought that he could never please his dad. Gerard Sr. favored his daughter and his other son over him. This is just how he feels, okay? Uh, There's no way to substantiate it. So due to his father being gone all the time at work, though, there there was a void between him and his dad. Uh, Gerard did, however, have a really good strong bond with his mom and she was very protective of the kids very very protective of the children so i say so a lot god damn 
I don't even write it in here. Where Gerard was uh, not your typical loner. He developed a love of the outdoors, and, you know, activities outside, like hunting and fishing. And he, d- he loved hiking and, you know, all the activities that you do outside. And sometimes you'd actually get to do it on the rare occasion that his father was home with his dad. So I, I, I bet that had to be pretty special to him. So the downside was that he was coming into his teenage years. And so a lot of things would develop. You know, due to perversions and things like that. Um, he was known as a peeping Tom. He's looking to women's windows. Um, you know, uh, just uh, but keep in mind, you know, you're coming into your sexuality as you're coming into your, te- your teens, right? And what he had said was that by the time he was about 12 years old, he discovered women's panties and he began masturbating while wearing them, which led him to a fascination with bondage. He said he would tie himself to, to a tree and struggle to get free. And it would excite him sexually at times so much that he started hurting himself. The self-urge to, uh, the, his self-urges increased and turned outward to where he fantasized about hurting, hurting others, you know, especially women. And he admitted to having a large preoccupation with death to the point he couldn't separate facts and what was fantasy. So as I said, the downside was he's coming into his, his teenage years, right? He's looking into women's windows. And there was a class uh, made of him of his named uh, Barbara Krolick, who said that she didn't remember him being friends with anybody else in school, like any of the other guys, right? Uh, and then she had to tuck her skirt under her legs because he would practically stand on his head to look under a girl's skirts. He was also developing a few kinks, such as autoerotic asphyxiation. So, for those of you that don't know what that is, okay, because you live under a rock or you're just not into kinky shit, that's when you cut off the airway that you need, you know, to breathe. The air can't breathe until you orgasm. And he was developing his sadomasochistic ways at the same time. So, at first, it was just Schaefer doing it to himself, right? Tying himself to trees and things like that. But it became more frequent as time went on until it practically consumed every free moment that he had. Oh, where the hell was I? So now they're they're in Florida, right? And as a young teen, he joined the local yacht club and he met his first girlfriend there. So Cindy was 14, just like he was. They dated for three years. And as time went on, they'd become sexually active with each other, which you would expect, right? Because, you know, you're kind of dating and everything. There was a strange thing about them having sex, though. He would only let uh, Cindy perform scripted scenarios, letting Schaefer tear off her clothes and, quote, rape her each time they had sex. And finally, in 1964, Cindy dumped him. She's like, adios, pichachos. I'm gone. Now, here's my thought on this, okay? I don't think that a 14, that 14-year-olds, 14 you know, should have, should have been acting out rape fantasies. That's a bit bizarre, right? I mean, that's a bit too far advanced for anyone for that, at that age, even now. You know, with the access to porn and everything like that and people getting different ideas. You'd expect that a 14-year-old, they should have been you know, kissing, holding hands, maybe copping a field. But not C&C play, which is consensual, non-consent play. 
To me, that shows that there was something really wrong with uh, Gerard. Mentally. Right there. But Cindy isn't any better because she went along with it. You know, love is love. And I dig that, you know. But you would think that at 14 years old, <clears throat> you know, she would have just looked at him and said, hey, Susie, Susie said, hey, I want to pretend to rape you. Um, she should have said, you know, adios, pichachos. You know, like, I'm out of here. Like, no, that's a bit fucking weird. I'm out. So the same day he was dumped, Schaefer went into the woods because he hadn't played this game in a long time. And he started playing his bonded games again for the first time since leaving Georgia. So in high school, let's get to there. Sorry, I got the burps and everything. I apologize a lot, too. Huh? Weird. In high school, he played football. Uh, other than that, he was described as a loner, kind of weird, and always, quote, out of it. Even to where he would stand. What the fuck? I don't even want to. Sorry, this is. There's a bad sentence in this one, and I have to take it out, or I will be in there forever. So he went to a private school, right? He goes to a Catholic uh, school, but he, so you can blame most of this on the damn Catholics. Um, he would question the nuns, though, about the religious dogma and scientifically challenge the virgin birth of Christ. Now, I got to tell you guys. <clears throat> right or wrong, I admire that about this guy. I mean, here's the thing. If you have questions, then you should ask them. He obviously had questions, but of course the nuns were pissed because he met them with scientific facts over the lack of proof. Just saying. Now, I know, I know, I know what the Christians say, okay? But, well, there is proof of God. Then you go, prove it, and they go, uh, you just have to believe. It's based on faith. Look, whatever your deal is, I don't give a shit what you believe in personally, you know. But I think that uh, he was in the right to, to, to challenge this whole thing. Ah, good old water. So in 1964, he got into a meaningful relationship with 17-year-old Sandy Stewart. And he comes in, he just sweeps her off of her feet, right? He's very just loving and caring and charismatic. Everything that she could ever want in a guy. Matter of fact, he was so good that she that he was accepted into her family and treated like he was part of the family as well. And it really was the first time that he felt truly idealistic. Like his life was just fucking wonderful, right? However, some think that Gerald was just playing a charade. So while dating Sandy, he applied to become a priest and was rejected. Claiming he did not have enough faith. So feeling let down. He gave up what he called the Catholic mind control and abandoned the church. He's like, I'm out of here. Okay, here's another thing okay, that I don't understand. Gerard is in a meaningful relationship. And he feels for the first time like he, in his life that he's you know, accepted and he's happy. Then why the hell would you try to become a priest? Because priests have to take a vow of abstinency and can't, they, they can't get married. It makes no fucking sense. All right, his relationship with Sandy ended after it became more of a therapy session than a relationship. Because, you know, people, uh, anywho's, he'd pour out in anger and uh, tears his urges to kill women who aroused him. The Cindy relationship, you know, he talked about you know, being in the relationship with Cindy, you know, and how they played rape scenarios and things like that. Once it did end, he stalked her. You know, as she dated other boys, but 
Thankfully, he finally gave up. He's like, eh, I'm losing interest in this. With all that said, he was still well-liked by his teachers who thought of him as a promising student. He graduated and went on to Boward County College in 1964. Uh, he, was, he also worked as a fishing guide in the Everglades before enrolling in the community college. So, remember how Sandy dumped him because the relationship became more of a counseling session? Well, he confessed his urges to his writing teacher, who suggested the college counselor, Dr. Neil Crispo. He told the counselor that he wanted to join the army because he liked to kill things, even cows. All right, here's the thing before I read this next part, okay? Sit down and seriously buckle up because I have... I, we, we've done things on some pretty sick motherfuckers. This one here is going to kind of blow your mind. So it wasn't just that he wanted to shoot them. Like he's not out there playing sniper and shooting cows. Once he shot them, he beheaded them with a machete before he raped their carcasses. Yeah, fucking gross. Jesus Christ. I'll never look at hamburger the same way again. So in 1965, after completing one semester of college, he left to travel with uh, Sing Out 66. It's a musical road troupe of the super patriotic, you know, like red, white, and you. With the hopes of joining the European tour, but was sidelined with the measles. He returned to gra- and graduated in 1967 with an associate's degree in business administration, which led him to FAU, Florida Atlantic University. <clears throat> to get a teaching certificate. However, his failing grades failed to support a deferment from the military. So, he had to report in April to uh, for the Army. So, he left a suicide note in his dorm, and he fled. He's like, I'm out of here, right? Um, he did it to help him get the deferment with a psychological uh, disorganization, that type of a thing, right? Nothing supports Schaefer's later claim that he wore women's underwear to beat the draft. But he did receive a a 1-Y deferment for mental, moral, or physical disorders. So here's what a 1-Y deferment actually means. Um, It's that it just basically means that he's only going to get called only in times of extreme emergencies. Like when you're all out of options, then that's when you're going to call this guy. Like, okay. This is just going to be a shit show. Let's just call this fuck up. So, in December of 1968, Schaefer married his fiance Martha, and she went by Marty, Louise Fogg, F-O-G-G, um, a fellow FAU student who was two years younger than he was. He'd met her at Boward, and, and he'd briefly toured with her patriotic troupe, you know, which was Sing Out 66, which offered an alternative to the contemporary kind of hip, hippie movement going on. It's the 60s. You don't get the hippie movement going on. The couple rented a property at Southwest 22nd Street in Fort Lauderdale. Although their relationship soon became strained due to Schaefer's constant demands of, for sex and spending so much of his free time out there hunting and in the woods, you know, doing his thing. In 1969, his parents finalized their divorce, though. So they got a divorce. They're out of here. And Schaefer moved in to his mom's house. And, of course, you know, remember I said he got kicked out? We got back to FAU as a student. It was really weird because three days after classes started, 
His neighbor, Lee bon- Bonides, vanished, disappeared. Now, I have a saying about some women that I've dated over the time. And the saying is, you can only hide your crazy for so long. And I guess his crazy finally came out. The two divorced, that's him and, uh, and Marty, divorced May 2nd of 1970. And Marty had cited Schaefer's extreme cruelty as a reason for their separation. And it makes sense, considering that he you know, was having rape fantasies since he was fucking in his early teens. So in March of 1969, and this might jump around a little bit, but trust me, it all comes out the same. Schaefer got a job as a student teacher at Plantation High School. He started uh, on September 23rd. Okay, that kind of makes sense, I suppose. Anyway, uh, he mostly taught geography, which is what he had a degree in, uh, or was getting his degree in. Uh, it, it was really short-lived, however. He was fired on November 2nd, or 7th, rather, for refusing to accept advice from his supervisors and constantly attempting to impose his own morality and political uh, opinions on the students. That's a great thing to do at a high school. Beautiful. Let's just indoctrinate him, right? Which had led the school to receiving numerous complaints from parents. And shortly after that, Schaefer applied as, for a student teaching position at Boca Raton Community High School. But they turned him down. They're like, um, no, we, we know about you. You're a fucking freak. So four months went by, and in March of 1970, Schaefer got another teaching internship. He started teaching geography at Stranahan, I think it's Stranahan, High School on April 2nd. So his progress reports, because, you know, you're an intern, you're going to get progress reports like you do at any job when you first start, you're in your kind of 90-day thing. So the Schaefer performed really bad, okay, really poorly at the high school. Uh, with his supervisors uh, saying both, you know, kind of noting down and commenting on his arrogance and his very limited knowledge of the subject that he actually taught. Seven weeks after Schaefer started his teaching position, the principal of the high school told him the school's decision to withdraw him from the internship program by May 18th. They're like, you got to get out of here. Because why? Because you're a dipshit. His career as a student teacher formally ended that day. I mean, as soon as he was out, he was like, I can't do this. He did manage to graduate, though, uh, which is good for him, you know. Uh, but now it was time to for him to kind of think about his life. I mean, he sucked as a teacher. So what else could he do? So shortly after he got, you know, fired and all that good stuff, and he graduated, um, he decided he's going to go on vacation in Europe and North Africa. After coming back to Florida, and after that, you know, he came back to Florida. He's like, hi, I'm a Floridian again. Which, by the way, all weird shit comes from Florida. He briefly got a job at Wackenut Corporation as a security guard. And, you know, he's sitting there, he's kind of thinking about his next career move. What's he going to do? Well, on September 1st of 1970... He applied for a job within the Wilton Manor's police department. Now, here's the thing. He failed to tell him the fact that he had twice been fired as a student teacher, you know, within the previous year. Instead, he lied his ass off, claiming that he had acquired two years' experience as a, as a research analyst at FAU. <clears throat> and 
and uh, recently returned, you know, from to the U.S. from Morocco. Schaefer's previous work history never verified. They're like, hey, you know what? He's he's alive, and we need a cop. Next on cops, crazy killer cops. So, um, he was formally inducted into the Boward County Police Department. Okay, well, Wilton Manners on September of 1971, and he graduated as a per, per, uh, patrolman at the end of the year at the age of 25. So now he's a cop. Bad boys, what you gonna do when they come for you? In January 71, though, seven months before Schaefer began his career as a police officer, he met 19-year-old secretary named Teresa Dean while working as a security guard. While he was working as a security guard. So the two became engaged and married in Fort Lauderdale, Florida on September 11th of that year. So according to Schaefer, his second marriage was more harmonious than his first. His second wife didn't complain about frequent demands for sex, and she also liked the outdoors. You know, she liked to, to fish and, you know, like in the Florida Keys. Just having a good time. So I think common interests, boys and girls, is pretty damn important in any relationship. I mean, if you don't have anything in common with a person, then you're just kind of going through the motions. Okay, so Schaefer's job with, you know, Wilton Manor Police Department lasted a whole whopping six months. Although he earned a commendation for his, uh, from his supervisors during an occasion when they were doing a drug raid, his general performance was considered very poor. You kind of see a pattern here. This guy kind of, he's a, he's a half-asser. That's what I call him. This is just what I surmise from this. He doesn't, you have some people that you work with that have a good work ethic. They come in and they do the best that they can at everything. Man, 110%. Then you have the half-assers that they kind of do enough to get by, but sometimes it's just not enough. You know, you're kind of like, dude, would it kill you to lift a fucking finger? He was fired from his position when his supervisors, though, found out they had a habit of stopping cars driven by female motorists who had committed just minor traffic infractions. You know, like maybe they didn't come to a full stop at a stop sign, that type of shit. He then entered their license plates into a database to obtain further personal details about them and then would contact them and ask them out for dates. This guy's a fucking creep. What a fucking creep. I tell you, as a, as a dude, as a dude, if I got pulled over by a female cop, okay, and she said, you know, license, registration, proof of insurance, I go, here you go, and then she writes me my ticket, or even if she says, I'm just going to let you go, and she called me later on, like a day, two days, a week, it doesn't fucking matter, I'm going to get a drink of water, and said, hey, this is, you know, such and such, will you go out on a date with me, I'd be like, no, you fucking freak. No, that's creepy. That's fucking that's stalkerish. Shortly before he was fired, though, Schaefer had begun looking for a better paying job in law enforcement somewhere else. He found a job as a deputy with the Martin County Sheriff's Department on June 23rd of 72. So check this out. <laughs> Since this guy is not a winner, winner, chicken dinner. He forged a letter of recommendation from Wilton Manners endorsing his application. Well, they ran his background check. He didn't have a criminal record, so there you go. 
Who would have guessed that this was where he would actually get caught? Okay, let's get into the meat and potatoes of what got this bastard busted. On the afternoon, of, it's July 21st of 72, okay? And Schaefer found, he comes across two teenage hit, hit, blah, hitchhikers named Nancy Ellen Trotter, and she was 18, and Paula Sue Wells of 17. I'd say, I like that name, Paula Sue, for a kid, because you can yell that out with determination. Paula Sue, get on in here! And you can you feel it. Mm, it's a good yelling name. That's why I named my son Jacob Matthew. It's that good... You know, you have to find a name that you can yell at your kids when you're pissed off. Check it, Matthew Alexander. Get out of here. Okay, so he's on patrol. Comes across these two chicks, right? These two young girls. And he drove the pair uh, to their intended destination, which is the town of Stewart. <clears throat> and so on the way, he cautioned the girls against hitchhiking because it's dangerous. He chatted with them for a bit, and he learned that neither of the girls, though, were native to Florida. And that the two had intended to travel to Jensen Beach the, the next day. Schaefer offered to drive them to the location. Hey, be safe with the cop, right? The girls accepted his offer and agreed to meet him at, the, at a bandstand on East Ocean Boulevard right around 9.15. The next morning. Schaefer arrived at the bandstand, uh, you know, right on time. Uh, and he wasn't wearing his uniform. He's driving his own vehicle. Uh, he convinced Trotter and Wells, though. He was still on duty, having switched to plain clothes uh, for undercover duties and driving an unmarked car. Dun, dun, dun. Tell you, man, this guy is fucking like the goddamn cops episode all over. It's weird. Oh, man. So shortly after the girls entered the vehicle, Schaefer took a different route on the pretext of showing the girls an old Spanish fort near Hudson Island. While driving, he again, you know, lectured the girls about accepting lifts from random strangers and the dangers of being, you know, sold into white slavery before stopping the vehicle close to a dilapidated shed deep inside of a remote forest where he handcuffed them and gagged the girls. He then took one victim to one of the girls to a big cypress tree close to the Indian River and tied her legs to the trunk just below the knees before putting a noose around her neck, which he tied off to a branch in a way uh, as to kind of force her to stand on the exposed the exposed roots uh, to kind of counter-pressure the pressure from the noose. So Schaefer took the other girl to another tree just a short distance away and did the same thing to her. So now they're having to stand on roots, you know, with nooses around the neck. And they were told that they were going to be raped and murdered. So, about then, Schaefer receives an urgent radio call informing him to immediately report to the police station. Like, he's got to go to work right now. Left both the girls bound and standing on their roots. On the roots. And telling him that he would be back soon. Uh, and exclaiming to one of his captains, I got to go. Uh, both girls were warned not to try to run away because he's not going to be very far down the road. With Schaefer also claiming that he was to confer with an individual he intended to sell them to. It's a bullshit story. Just a scare him. It's just a total bullshit story. So, Schaefer comes back in, uh, to the force about two hours later, right? 
he discovered that both the girls had escaped. They're gone. He immediately returned home and he called his station. Because, you know, he's an idiot and comes up with fucking dumbass ideas. Here's why. So, he calls and he informs Sheriff Robert Crower, that's his boss, I've done something very foolish and you're going to be mad at me. Schaefer then explained uh, that he had decided to, quote, teach the girls a lesson on the risks of hitchhiking, but overdid his job. He then explained that he had abandoned the two girls in the general swampland area of Hutchinson Island, not too far from the Indian River. Crower and Lieutenant Melvin Waldron immediately they go out to Florida State Road A1A, where close it's kind of close by the highway, right? They're, so they're looking, and they found a partially gagged teenage girl with her hands pinned behind her back, swimming using a flutter kick in the river. She's like, "I gotta get away." So, as the cops are coming to a stop, they saw her, you know, kind of distraught girl clamor from the riverbank with sections of her jeans and her blouse just shredded. You know, and he, she's trying to get their attention. She already has it, but she's still trying. When the gag was taken out of the girl's mouth, the officer heard her identify herself as Nancy. Sputtering her friend was somewhere in the forest. Okay, but to Trotter's relief, to Nancy's relief, she was told that a truck driver had discovered her friend, you know, the Wells girl, um, and she was already at the police station. She was taken in. She's good to go. Nancy gets inside the cop car. She's driven to the station where she and Wells recounted their ordeal to, you know, Sheriff Crowder. Both girls said that they had managed to escape their bindings by gingerly kind of writhing against their restraints and loosening their gags with their teeth while trying to keep their balance on the exposed tree roots. They also said that the process of freeing themselves had taken a lot of time. Well, apparently, two fucking hours, right? Both girls understood that even one slip, they would have been hanged. Because, you know, as I said before, they're bouncing on tree roots, trying not to hang themselves. And they, But they both also provided detailed descriptions of their assailant and his vehicle before identifying Schaefer as the guy... Who abducted him? Sorry, I had a lot of water today. Oh, man. So Schaefer repeated his insistence that he simply overreacted in an effort to demonstrate the dangers of hitchhiking to the young women. And no one bought his story, by the way. No one at the cop shop. They're like, he's full of shit. He's fired as a deputy sheriff. And, uh, and Crowder says, man, arrest this asshole. All right? And file charges for false imprisonment and an aggravated assault. And they did that. <coughs> so around two weeks after he was arrested, Schaefer posted $15,000 worth of bail, which meant he was free prior to a scheduled November 1972 trial. He returned to his house, and his second wife, uh, the, him and his second wife also rented in the town of Stewart. And his wife and his in-laws, <coughs> oh, Christ, I have so many sinus problems, I swear to fucking God. Anyway, his in-laws and his wife said there was really no change in his behavior, believing his claim that he'd simply been trying to teach the hitchhikers a lesson. 
As Schaefer waited trial, he obtained just this low-end menial employment at, at Quick Check. And I think that's a convenience store, I think. It sounds like a convenience store from the South. All right. So while all this is going on, the cops serve a search warrant on Gerald's mother's house. And what they found at, at his mom's house, as well as his own home, uh, what they found wouldn't, wouldn't be proof, but enough circumstantial evidence so that they could link him to other crimes. But without bodies, well, you know how it goes. It's a bitch, isn't it? So, it's April of 73, and the jewelry that belonged to, remember when we talked about Lee Boundaries, the next-door neighbor? They find that at Doris Schaefer's home. Uh, like I said, she was the neighbor that disappeared. Now, Schaefer claimed that she was leaving her husband, Charles, and asked him to, uh, for a ride to the airport, where she meant to catch a flight to Cincinnati. Schaefer agreed to take, him, take her. He's like, yeah, I'll do that. But Lee never called him back with the departure time. And Lee's faith is still a fate is still unknown. We don't know what happened to her. Nobody, nothing like that. The fact still remains that Gerald was the last person to have contact with her. I think that he killed her. The circumstantial evidence says it. Um, but we can't find her. So the next one to vanish was a lady by the name of Carmen Marie Halleck of Boward County on December 18th of 69. She was a 22-year-old cocktail waitress, and she had mentioned to her sister-in-law that she had a date with a teacher. So keep in mind, this is what he's teaching. We're going to jump back and forth. This is the whole list of pe- this is the list of people that you know they can time to. Anyway, the teacher offered her a job involving undercover work with the government that was planned for that evening. Halleck didn't show up to work the next day, and no one started looking for her until Christmas Day. Relatives went to her apartment and found her bathtub full of water, her dog wasn't fed, and her car was found in a nearby parking lot a few days later. In 1973, when Schaefer's stash of souvenirs was found, police recovered two of Halleck's gold-filled teeth and a shamrock pin identified by her family, but her body never found. Now, I have a problem with this one. If you have a date with a teacher... How the hell are you getting undercover work as for the government? That just made no sense to me, but it is what it is. Okay, so here's how he met his second wife, okay? I just have this in here. While working at uh, Florida Light and Power uh, to make tuition money, he met and got engaged to Teresa Dean. They were married soon after he graduated from FAU with a bachelor's degree in geography. And I like to think of this, holy crap, this guy keeps on getting married. He's going to catch up with my record for marriages. So I just kind of wanted to throw that in there for context of, you guys kind of understand where ex-wife, or well now ex-wife, two came in. Because she divorced him before he got killed. So here, that's another person that fucking disappeared. It's another cocktail waitress named Belinda Hutchins. She is also 22 years old. But she was married to a drug addict and had a two-year-old child. Hutchins had been arrested for prostitution in 1970 and paid her $250 fine in Fort Lauderdale. On January 5th of 72, her husband and her daughter watched her get into a blue Datsun sedan and vanish from their lives forever. During the search of Doris's home, 
during that search in 1973, the cops found a piece of paper containing the name, address, phone number of Belinda's husband. Days later, the hu- the husband identified that blue Datsun that Schaefer was driving. Are we all catching on now? We all okay. I'll, I'll just checking with you. Take a deep breath, y'all. Take a deep breath. That's for the listening audience. I'm doing this on my own right now in my underwear. I know, pretty nice, huh? T-shirt and underwear with my dog. That's my dating life right there right now. So, Schaefer later wrote that he found doing doubles, as in double murders, was way more fun to watch and beg for who he would, you know, and, and kind of wonder who the, he was going to kill first. Although he couldn't pinpoint when the double killing started, uh, but seven years after the fact, his name was linked to the disappearance of 21-year-old Nancy Leekner and 20-year-old Pamela Nader in Pinellas County in 1966. Uh, and they, they were on a picnic in Ocala State Forest, and they're still missing. Another case with Schaefer's involvement was the murder, and this one here kind of made me sad. It's kids, man. Uh, was his involvement in the murder of... This is going to be fucked, but hey, here we go. <clears throat> Nine-year-old Peggy Ron and eight-year-old Wendy Stevenson in Pompano Beach, Florida. They vanished from the beach December 29th of 1970, and a store clerk identified a man that matched Schaefer, and yes, they are still missing. Here's the super fucked up part. He was never chalked, but sh- uh, you know, charged, which just that, that's a shocker. But they couldn't find, you know, the bodies. Okay, and there's plenty of public executions going around blaming him for the girls going missing because everybody saw him. The clerk saw him. He later, though, confessed on April 19th of '89, stating, "Quote: Peggy and Wendy just happened along." At a time when I was curious about 1930s cannibal Albert Fish's craving for the flesh of young girls. I assure you, these girls were not molested sexually. I found them both very satisfactory, particularly particularly with sautéed onions and peppers. That is his quote. That's why I said this one's sad and pretty fucked up. So let's go back to while he was out on bail, okay? Well, he's out on bail for his trial on the uh, Trotter Wells abduction in Marion uh, in Marin County on September 27th of 72. His next known victim had been murdered. Yeah, he's out. He, he's, you know, I wrap your mind around. It. He's out on, a, on, on, on this kidnapping charge, you know, and, and assault and shit like that. Let's go murder somebody. The devil slaying of Susan, Susan Place and George, Georgia Jessup. These are the murders that would land him in prison for life. And the only ones he was ever actually tried for. Sadly, after the girl's death on October 23rd. So, too little, too late, man. He's out on bail. He's out killing. So, Mary Allen. I'm going to fuck this name up, too. I'm going to say it's Briscolina. B-R-I-S-C-O-L-I-N-A. And Elsie Lena Farmer, who were both 14 years old, had been added to the missing list. And both girls' skeletal remains 
um, had been found and identified by dental records eight days after Schaefer went to jail. And yes, following the April search of Doris Schaefer's home, Farmer's relatives, that's uh, Elsie's relatives, identified a piece of jewelry taken from the murdered kid. Again, Schaefer was never charged for those murders. But in this letter, he admitted to one of his published stories titled Murder Demons. And here's a quote. What crimes am I supposed to confess? He wrote in on April 9th of 91. Farmer Briscolina. What do you think murder demon is? Fiction? You want confessions, but you don't recognize them when I anoint you with them. And 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 that shows that's a fucking god complex if I've ever fucking heard one. I mean, it's by using the word anoint. You know, like he's some kind of a saint, like he's some kind of a uh, the giver of knowledge or the giver of of some. To me, he's the giver of bullshit. He's a ha- he was a half-ass guy doing a half-ass job at every fucking thing that he did, and targeting, of course, little girls, you know, and people that were easy to fucking get. A piece of shit. Hang tight, boys and girls. I'm just getting frustrated here. So once he was sentenced for Trotters and Trotter and Wells, right? He didn't enter prison until January fifteenth of seventy-three. One week later. One week later, after his sentence, right? He hadn't gone to prison yet. 19-year-old Colette. This is an awesome name. Good enough. And Barbara Ann Wilcox left Biloxi, Mississippi and hitchhiked to Florida. And there was no trace of the girls until April when the cops found Schaefer's stash. They also found the driver, their driver's licenses, passports, diary of the two girls, and shocker, uh, and shocker remains had been found. Oh, there we go, had been found in uh, Port St. Lucie on in January of 1977, but no cause of death or charges were ever filed. So Teresa Schaefer. This is uh, wife number two, the one that he said was more harmonious because, you know, she didn't complain about wanting, you know, him wanting sex all the time. Now, that I have to agree with because I'll tell you, man, if (laughs) I don't understand this when women complain about sex and won't give it up to you at all, but expect you not to have sex. That makes no fucking sense. Just throwing that out there. Anyways, Teresa Schaefer divorced Gerald. Gerard, on her one and only visit to the prison to serve him papers on November 17th of 73, and ended up dating her lawyer, Elton Schwartz, may the Schwartz be with you, and marrying him on November 30th. See? Quick, quick. Let's just get this all done, right? So Schaefer, he's in prison, right? He stayed busy trying to expose conspiracy, saying that he was framed by the drug-dealing lawman. He filed 19 appeals. Each appeal was dismissed. The judge made it clear that judgment's final, and he was not eligible for parole. So back to being accused of trying to escape from being married to a Filipina. This is why he's still in prison, right? He gets married. But, and she basically she was a mail order bride, from what I can surmise from it. 
So once they were married and she got to America and got her green card, she dropped him. And this is back in 85. She's like, I got what I need. Adios, pachachos. So then back to mail fraud operations of being a shady jailhouse lawyer to inmates. That's right. He is the original Slim Shady, right? I'm trying to get something done here. Just one second. It's that way there. Saves me time. This guy had a list of shit. And this is this is where I'm just cracking up. So, you guys remember my one of one of our favorite episodes, which was Lucas and Tool. Well, well. Schaefer's sometimes confident with self-described cannibal Otis Tool. And Schaefer wrote to John Walsh. After talking to Otis, um, posing as Tool, demanding 50 grand for Adam Walsh's remains. Now, for those of you that don't know the story, Adam Walsh was John Walsh's son. John Walsh, of course, uh, you know, began America's Most Wanted, um, which helped put a lot of people in prison, um, including people like John List and things like that. So, Sandra London reached out to him. Uh, and because they had dated in high school, um, and and wrote short stories, uh, a short story titled "Killer Fiction," he became obsessed with her, and, but and then turned out threatening her, which led her to terminate their relationship. He's like, "No, you're fucking nuts." But with the story, Sandra was able to have cold case, uh, cold cases solved after his death. So Sandra returned. To Stark Prison, not to see Schaefer, but to see the Greenville Ripper, Danny Rollins. And as one does, she found him very charming and wonderful and became his, his fiance. Said, Danny, I'm going to marry you because I love you. So Rollins wrote to Sandra that Schaefer was he figured out that he was actually the jailhouse rat. Like, he's snitching on everybody, right? Uh, over a year, and he had been, you know, like, pissed on and people throwing shit at him, you know, and then finally somebody set fire to his fucking cell. That's fucked up, right? <clears throat> okay, boys and girls, we're going to get to the happy ending, because this, to me, this makes me smile. Schaefer was found dead in his cell. On December 3rd of 1996, and he had been slaughtered. The road had been slashed, stabbed 42 times in the head and neck. And they left a bloody handprint on the wall, who they claimed was 33-year-old Vincent Riviera. He had a, he had a fight with, uh, with Schaefer over Schaefer's taking the last cup of hot water prior to the murder. Which I'd be pissed off to. Need my copy. So in 96, Vincent wrote to Sandra to let her know that the bloody handprint was not Schaefer's or his. Schaefer's mother and sister accused Otis uh, Toole of the murder, uh, that alleging that Toole felt threatened by Schaefer's efforts to help find Adam Walsh's remains. And Vincent Riviera was handed an additional 53 years and 10 months, plus the 20 on his plate. Already. Now, here's the thing. Okay, uh, I'm going to end with this. I don't think Otis Toole <laughs> was threatened by Schaefer's efforts at 
fucking off. The the parents here are sitting there going, oh, our our son's trying to help Adam Walsh. Uh, You know, uh, so that way they're... John can find his remains, and da, da, da. he's he's trying to extort money from him. Is what he's doing? Be a fucking idiot! Jesus Christ! Anyway, no accounting for stupidity, right? All right, boys and girls, I'm gonna wrap this one up because I got some other things I gotta do, like another fucking episode. Remember, you can send us an email at brutalnation at twistedbluellc.com. Check us out on Medium. Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook. Now, I, I try to say this at the end of, of every show. Number one, go to Citizens of Brutal Nation. And I believe on Brutal Nation and Citizens of Brutal Nation, there are links so you can get merch. You know, your Brutal Nation t-shirt, which looks amazingly stylish. Flip through the pictures, you'll see uh, Jen Dahl wearing one. And, uh, and, and uh, Brian Engel, who I just love to death. Of course, we sent him one. Um... Two amazing people, you know. And Brian, I know you're listening to this, but we gotta we gotta get together and and, and, and talk and chit chat because we've both been hella busy. Uh, what else? Let's see. I think that's about it. Log on, interact with us though. We have a good time doing it. Like I said, feel free to ask us any questions. I try to answer everything. I try to answer my emails and show. Well, this show's copyrighted 2024 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And if you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, except for our like Metal Cross Radio or anything else that we don't authorize, and they're lying. Thieving bastards. We will talk to you guys later on. Bye-bye.